but you're not uh, obviously you're not originally from Indonesia, right? Or, or oh, you're no, not. Uh, shall I start the spiel now? It looks like it's recording. Oh yeah, I mean I already clicked record because okay. we usually like, like you know just start and then okay yeah yeah um, as we go <laughs> no I'm, I'm an american i grew up in virginia and uh i went to school there and then when i was like 20 something i moved to new york and i lived there for almost two decades um and then yeah my wife and i decided to seek adventure um partly i i I'd saved up a bunch of money and wanted to start a, a little software as a service and mm-hmm. so we were just trying to save a bit of money by moving to Southeast Asia. And COVID kind of threw a wrench in our plans. Um, Uh, So we didn't originally plan to come here at all. Uh, My wife studies Japanese and she really wanted to uh, pursue that. Mm. And so she went off to Japan in late December, first year of the pandemic, I think. And then two days, the plan was I was going to pack up the apartment and I would follow uh, up with her uh, later. And uh, two days after she arrived from Japan, they closed the borders to everybody, not just, you know, random tourists or you know, people who, whose spouses had uh, visas, but also like permanent residents, like people who were married <laughs> to Japanese citizens could not get back in. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we kind of played it by ear and every semester we'd reevaluate and I'd be like, well, it's three months later. Can I get into Japan now? And the answer just kept being no, no, no. So we eventually decided to give up on Japan. Um, we met in Portugal. We were there for three months. It was nice enough. Um, and then we were looking at Southeast Asia. And we'd both been to Thailand many, many years ago. But Thailand, uh, their tourist visa setup was, they had something called the special tourist visa for the pandemic. But it was so incredibly convoluted, almost nobody took it. Uh, so we looked at where Wait, we special could go. tourist visa for for pandemic, as in you can just go and visit <laughs> when yeah, there is pandemic. Yeah. Or... <laughs> so if, wow. if it had all worked out, we'd have been able to spend nine months straight in Thailand, but that was that didn't work out. So we looked at where mm-hmm. we could go, and um, Bali in Indonesia, it's a you know very tourism heavy place, and mm-hmm. uh, they were desperate, so uh, they gave us a, a business visa. So I showed up. And started working on my solo idea. And it was a terrible idea, so I had to kill it <laughs> eventually. But now I'm working on a different one. Um, hey, maybe, maybe I should do the introduction then now. <laughs> so like, sure. The person you're listening to is Matthew. Welcome to Deaf and Number, episode 88. <laughs> anyway, uh, but so you you were already but you were working already in in the US and then now you yeah. moved your business there or what was the uh so, main reason then so i'm basically trying to start a software as a service and uh, i don't have any customers mm-hmm. yet uh and so living here is just a, a way to keep costs down um mm-hmm. while i build mm-hmm. it yeah yeah that's the primary reason um we like indonesia a lot but we also wanted to check out other places the food in Thailand is clearly superior, um, so <laughs> but it's a little bit harder to stay there, stay here. So we're going to go back mm-hmm. to Indonesia next week, and then no, hopefully yeah. we can get a special tech visa for Thailand uh, and be able to stay here a little bit longer than what's allowed for tourists. Uh, it's all very convoluted and ever shifting. Uh, we'll see. Uh, a lot of the countries here have talked about digital nomad visas. 
but not too many of them have come through with that yet. Um, but and that being said, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say uh, Bali is the easiest. Um, there are essentially companies that exist to put you on the books and give you a, visa, a business visa, hmm. claim you're an employee, even though you don't really do anything for them. <laughs> um, so it makes it, and they, you can just kind of renew them for a long time. So it's, it's very easy to stay in Bali. Not nearly as easy to stay in Thailand. And is that, yeah. it's just, I mean, you know, we're kind of off topic to start with whenever on topic, you know, we can, it's like, <laughs> if we, if we hit the topic, it will be uh, a miracle. But anyway, uh, I was going to ask you was, do you, uh, do you think all of these things are just still a hangover from the pandemic or is it a general kind of way that the, that the countries are organized? Um, well, the hangover from the pandemic is them still kind of trying to get organized. So a lot of the tourism heavy places were really hit hard, like Bali in particular, the mm. majority of the, the island is, its economy is dominated by tourism. Mm. They were desperate to get people back. Um, yeah. I think at this point, uh, you know, it's, it's back to business as usual and the digital nomad visas are things they've been planning for a while. Right, um, right. Generally speaking, a lot of like uh, the countries around here are of the opinion that as long as you're not taking work away from a local, mm. uh, they're more or less okay with you coming here and spending your money as long as you don't cause any problems. Mm. Uh, so, for example, Bali is in the news because a bunch of Russian and Ukrainians got into some motorcycle accidents. And now they're contemplating you know, banning foreigners from uh, renting bikes, which to oh, be wow. Fair is, you know, probably probably safer. Um, <laughs> the the Balinese are amazing bike riders, and I can't hope to touch their ability. Well, how Especially about training them- rather than banning? Now, you know, it's like because most most of these things, like you have, like I, I, you know, in like the UK or in in Belgium, for example, you have to like qualify to to ride yeah. a bike or qualify to drive a car, you know. Obviously, VJ is going to tell me that that's all bullshit, you know. <laughs> I think you can still do it as long as you get a Balinese uh, driver's license. It's just that I don't think they're handing those out to tourists anymore. Like, you have to be a long-term resident. I'm not oh, too right, clear on okay. the I mean, if, if, if Bali is pretty much like India, I would assume that the, the training and the test mean nothing once you get on the road. <laughs> so there's no relationship. Yeah. <laughs> I was told when I got there that realistically as long as you wear your helmet and don't get into an accident you won't have any problems and that you know if the police might pull you over but the fine is minimal and it's mm. possible they're actually just looking for a bribe i never personally yeah. encountered any of that so i don't yeah. know for sure yeah. i don't want to disparage the balinese authorities and have some <laughs> some government official who also dabbles in closure on the side deny me entry yeah <laughs> i mean you should you should you, sh- you really shouldn't because the whole you know bali the entire island basically listen to this podcast like every day so oh, yeah. that, that's, that's right. one of the yeah. one of the exactly yeah that's the, that's the biggest demographic that we have so please don't defend any any <laughs> bali people yeah. <laughs> but I, sh- I should actually balance this out a little bit by saying that it's definitely not just uh india or asia because Remember when I first went on holiday to Ibiza, um, which, uh, you know, a young man, you go on holiday to Ibiza. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I hired a motorbike, as you do, to explore the island. And I came off it within like two minutes, scraped my knees mm-hmm. off, wasn't wearing any helmets, anything like that. 
I was like, oh, carry on. You know, I was like, <laughs> and it was fine, you know. Someone else in the group, there was like six of us, I think, and someone else came off as well. But it didn't, wasn't just the scripts, really, you know. So yeah. didn't get involved in too many crashes. Yeah, Zero tra- zero training, you know, basically a start, you know, turn, turn the throttle, hit the brake. That's oh. it, that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did, I took a, a day's worth of training, but... I was nowhere near prepared by the time I actually had my bike. Wow. Um, okay. The state of and the state of Balinese. I mean, there's there's really not much in the way of like road infrastructure uh, outside mm-hmm. of the main city, Denpasar. It's like every road is is back roads. Um, it's dangerous uh. to to even walk. Um, so there's these. It's not laid out anything like a grid. Uh, it's very much. So a lot, of, a lot of traffic gets concentrated on very, you know, key roads. And mm-hmm. when you're trying to travel parallel to the beach in certain areas, you have to go through what are colloquially called shortcuts. And these are essentially mm-hmm. like concrete platforms, like five feet above the ground, passing through rice paddies. And they're super narrow. And oh, if you, you can't, there's no shoulder on the side. So what happens yeah, is you will yeah. simply fall five feet into a rice paddy and good luck getting whatever your vehicle is out of that. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> um, the, okay, the worst it's a highway act just to get to the beach. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, and the guardrails are like uh, tests in your software. Is that the way that you wrote a blog post <laughs> saying, "Hey, how tests are gonna, you know, mess up your design?" <laughs> They're like, yeah. "No yeah, guardrails. You, know, you should know how to drive." <laughs> can go faster with no guardrails. Yeah. Right, right. It's the, the empire style of uh, road design. Notice how they never have any guardrails in Star Wars and everybody's always falling off. <laughs> Same philosophy. <Yeah. laughs> leave, this little, leave this little kind of minor thing. No one will ever get it. They'll never work out how to hit this very specific little point that, that will blow up the entire star. <laughs> leave, that, leave that open. Yeah. And they, they will so, never know about this. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. We... Took a little bit of time to travel and then hit Thailand. And, uh, you know, the food is better. It's a little more walkable. We would like to stay here if possible, but we'll see. And whereabouts are you in the Thailand? Uh, the original digital nomad place, uh, Chiang Mai. Unfortunately, our timing is terrible. We're here in what's colloquially called the burning season, where uh, a lot of the agriculture here is slash and burn. Uh, so when the fields are done to get the nutrients back, they just set it on fire. Uh, Bali did yeah. the same, but apparently it's really bad up here, and the pollution is just staggering. Um, yeah, I think we had the same thing in um, in the in the north uh, west of India, like near Delhi and that that place. Every mm-hmm. during the season, basically they they burned all the things, and then because Delhi is already crazy populated with pollution anyway, so uh-huh. there is a thick layer of pollution on that level that the even the smoke can't penetrate that layer. So, so oh my God. everything is just like a, yeah, it's like a local um, sealed dome of carbon dioxide and all these gases that people suffer like oh, yeah. crazy. Every, it's something similar because of the mountains here. They, they concentrate the pollution. It's like a right. escape. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I was in Barcelona recently, and apparently the air quality in Barcelona is really low. Uh, really poor because of the mountains that are around it, that it sort of ends up trapping all the pollution that comes off the the, the vehicles, and it just yeah. can't escape. It's just so trapped by the by the huge mountains on the side. 
So yeah, it's a bit, it was a bit weird. Yeah, it's really anti-climatic, right? Because in India, the mountains basically stop, and they are the ones causing the seasons and monsoons and everything in India, because the mm-hmm. the colder air is being stopped by mm-hmm. the mountains, and then it bounces bounces back, and then we have two monsoon seasons because of that one. They, they were very. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the reason why we have two growing seasons, especially in the northern regions of India that is so fertile, because the mountains, Himalayas, are basically blocking this sea air coming from east and west um, the, okay. from the sea. And that's why we have the nice monsoon seasons and then growing seasons. And now they're also the reason why all the pollution is being blocked and, you know, <laughs> fucking up there, everybody yeah. who's living there, which is, yeah, sad. Yeah, Anyhow, I don't know what to... <laughs> I don't know what to think yeah, about. I think uh, I think those those are about. bigger problems than not having tests in your softwares. I think it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was listening to one. Of, I was listening to Zach's podcast when you interviewed uh, Telman. Uh, part of his mm. prep for this, I'm like, I should probably know what my predecessor said on this podcast. <laughs> um, and he was mentioning Brett Victor, and Brett Victor yeah. is partly an inspiration for what I'm doing now, or, or rather, not inspir- inspiration is the wrong word, but more like the uh, mm-hmm. impetus. Um, so yeah. I like doing, you know, very abstract, high-level programming, and it's part of mm-hmm. what drew me to closure. But at the same time, like, the part of me that's concerned about, you know, the state of the environment in the world is also concerned about, like, you know, software efficiency, like how many cycles are we just burning and wasting? You know, some of this is things like I refuse to really participate in proof of work cryptocurrency because I consider it almost an unethical use of electricity at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I've also been thinking about, you know, how can we cut down on, on the cycles we use when you, you know, stop wasting yeah. energy in, in the CPU. So stop all AI, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not, not sure about that leap, but... Um, well, it's a very crypto-like waste of energy in many ways. Doesn't seem to have many good mm-hmm. use cases. But okay, let's let's put that one till the end. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what we're gonna. But I think get maybe, out of maybe it's um. Yeah, I man. Please go ahead. If you, I'm fine. If you want to talk about AI, that's that's good. I mean, that's oh, I think that's the burning topic these days. I mean, literally burning the planet topic. <laughs> yeah. Um. I was playing around with some of the stable diffusion stuff recently. It's definitely wild what you can get it to do. Have you guys uh, messed mm-hmm. around with it yet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. It's. I mean, all I do is uh, just you know ask for you know give me an image of my dog doing something. My dog's race doing something, and then it just gives me some uh, weird looking wonky dog, and I get bored, and then I move on. Mm-hmm. Well, we are, we're all prompt engineers on Defen now. Yeah, fully certified prompt <laughs> engineers. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to get it to generate a business logo. Um, yeah, and I had very mixed results with that, but it did generate something interesting. And in the interest of time, I just kept it rather than keep fooling around with it. But uh, yeah. I have a whole bunch of you know publishing and art friends back in New York who are convinced the sky is falling. He's an anxious fellow, so he's convinced the sky is falling anyway. But uh, <laughs> he's probably right. Though, <laughs> But there is certain certain types of, I mean, either images or text that that can certainly be generated using this one, right? I mean, I, mean, I, I did try a couple of things with the new chat GPT-4 because we are all technical people. So, well, at least I keep asking technical questions like, how do you 
deploy a Helm chart into Kubernetes, and it keeps just giving an example of either Nginx or WordPress, then I, you can literally see just read it from <laughs> there. And I'm like, I'm like, no, not WordPress. I just want generic, right? Just generic Helm chart installation. Like, no, this is how you're going to install mm-hmm. Nginx again. Like, no. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, it's not that for that kind of use cases, probably. It's like a very sophisticated parrot at the moment. Um, yeah. The, the problem mm-hmm. is, is the technology is just going to get better and better. Uh, I was yeah. just reading about, you know, universities being terrified that, uh, oh, oh, yeah, no, no. yeah, yeah. It wasn't just they're, t- they're terrified of plagiarism by the use of chat GPT. Some, a bunch of researchers submitted an article on the ethics of AI and they had it written by chat GPT and it passed purely. Yes, and it was accepted. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really miss not having like, a, you know, GPT when I was doing my MBA because they asked like, write 2,200 words on something. And because mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm an engineer and I am I prefer writing like bullet points, like four of them, and then that's it. I don't need to <laughs> fill it up with words. And like, God damn it, 1,800 mark. I have to reach 1,800 mark somehow. And then you keep adding like, and furthermore, based on the <laughs> previous paragraph, <laughs> keep adding these yeah. filler words yeah. and everything. Jesus. I think all these kind of things will be super confusing for, for people who are driving their education based on writing essays and writing these things. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's going to be shitty. You know, the thing is, like, plagiarism in, in higher education has already been, like, a really big problem for a while anyway, though. Mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm, Before yeah. ChatGPT, there's been, like, you know, essay mills where you can just pay to have somebody write an essay. Yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah. I... So, I, okay, real quick, I went to school for computer science, but I was also really interested in the mind. So uh, after a few years at startups, I moved up to New York City and uh, started volunteering at a lab that studied emotion and memory. And eventually I became a research mm-hmm. assistant, and then I became a grad student at Columbia uh, doing cognitive neuroscience for consciousness. And as part of that, I had to TA a course every year. And I found that rather depressing. Because this is essentially, you know, an Ivy League institution. Uh, mm-hmm. The students here are supposed to be some of the best in the country. And I can't count the number of, like, you know, plagiarism and uh, cheating. And it was just, it was, I found it very depressing. Uh, because I always came from a model that education is not just about attaining credentials. It's about you know, learning something. Um, and then the most egregious example I came across was somebody who copied a paragraph out of Wikipedia. And I had enough other stuff to do as a grad student. And, you know, we didn't have sophisticated anti-plagiarism, you know, detection tools at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I found out they copied a paragraph from Wikipedia because they didn't change the font or the background color. (laughs) So in the middle of this essay of like black on, you know, white, uh, is this gray (laughs) paragraph with a different font. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, this looks suspicious. Uh, so I, I, you know, Googled the words involved and the first thing it turned up was Wikipedia. Um, oh my. I reported it to the professor, but, you know, the professor, he, he was an adjunct who enjoyed teaching. And I don't think he really wanted to like get involved with the Dean or helicopter parents or anything like that. Um, right. Yeah. So I don't know what came but, of I mean, it. The, I think that the incentives are wrong, right? Maybe that is the reason like the, the, the people who are, or getting into the education or not getting for the, as you mentioned, like because they have interest in something or because they want to learn more about something. It's it's fairly 
everything is rigged towards oh this is a career path everything is linked to a career path like that's super mm-hmm. annoying and but, and but even if you don't even if you side, don't like, yeah i was going to say even if you don't take that attitude it's super expensive um in the us to be educated yeah. so yeah, if you true. if you don't pass then there's a huge cost of failure so i think th- that's another problem with incentives over there um like over here in belgium it's like a thousand a year yeah it used to be like that in the us like 50 years ago i'll i'll give you an example right like i i'm i'm doing my psychology degree as a partial part time thing from uk so i finished half of it mm-hmm. and i thought because i'm a dutch citizen now i'm going to apply to university of amsterdam because it's closer and i would like to do it in in the netherlands and they tell me okay go through this exam to to uh, entry and then i have to prove that i can uh, study in english by taking an english test mm-hmm. right and i have to prove that i i i said look i have a bachelor of electronics engineering basically you know i i know some basic calculus and that's not a problem they're like no you have to take an exam to prove that you can you have the elementary mathematical understanding and english i'm like dude i just did my mba like two years of writing shit in english and then passing <laughs> in the netherlands not even any other country <laughs> 50 kilometers from your university they're like no that's right. not accepted you have to go through some i don't know toefl or uh, one of these exams and apply that one okay you know right. what i finished half of the psychology degree is that worth anything like nah you know no not really so take the exam yeah. take these two exams then you apply all right come on man this is Okay, fine. I guess you know I'm gonna go through this charade. Yeah. Like, doesn't make any any sense because I think it's like they don't want to make any exceptions. Nothing. Everybody falls through the same thing, and then you you just do this. Like, okay. And I'm not trying to be a psychologist or a neuroscientist. I'm I'm just studying because I'm interested in this shit. You know, right. I I'm I can't make a career out of a, being a therapist. You know, <laughs> I'd rather write shitty closure code <laughs> than just stay in that, but, that uh, domain. What in psychology yeah. uh, were you interested in studying? Well, I mean it was just like a reading all the pop side books initially from you know all the you know the general New York Times sort of books and then now I right. thought okay I want to get a bit more into uh biological psychology side but then the first uh-huh. degree is always going to be a holistic approach right so it's going to be more about both bio social and psycho thing the whole area so I'm I'm not sure what the Uh, I I don't have any big goal like I want I don't want to become a therapist or anything but I just mm-hmm. picked up something like a psychology and counseling and that's what I'm going to do so I just finished like I don't know around uh, half a half the course in the um, bachelor's degree and then okay. I thought okay I'm going to switch to something else because it's going to be closer and it's a nice university and you know it's going to be fun to do this they're like fuck you need to do all these exams like <laughs> jesus yeah. god damn it it's, it's I mean that's another uh, weird part. So many things wrong with academia. Uh, obviously I'm not yeah, still an yeah. academic even though I was working on yeah, a PhD. Yeah. Um yeah. which actually leads into my closure origin story. Um exactly. That's I that's was, what I was about to ask like how did you come from you know yeah. you started from this and then yeah yeah. So some of it was I was unhappy with academia in general. Uh I felt that like what we were learning in terms of perceptual awareness and consciousness was very far away from answering things like the hard problem of consciousness like what makes red red like what is the experience of red 
Like I can yeah. say stuff like, oh, well, you know, there's associated activations in, you know, area V4, which is the low level color area in the visual system. And that's not really, you know, very satisfying. Um, some of it was I saw my uh, advisor writing grants like mad trying to uh, get tenure and it looked pretty unpleasant. Some of it was that my data wasn't doing so hot. And so I was like, well, do I want to just become, you know, some professor in some random college town somewhere in the middle of America? And I was like, I don't want to do that. I'm kind of tied to, to New York at the time. Um, but what really, the, the moment that, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, uh, I was with some collaborators in uh, the Netherlands, um, at uh, Nijmegen, actually, uh, Radboud University. And <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. the perfect environment, you know, just like free scanner time, uh, no teaching demands. It was the summer. It, it was, everything was perfect and I still wasn't really happy. Um, and for my then girlfriend's birthday, uh, I decided to mess around with uh, this new language I'd been hearing about. So this would have been around 2010, I guess, 2009, 2007, oh. somewhere around then. I'd have to like double check. Uh, I had been, you know, I'd come from like computers and I was still reading hacker news and I'd come across many of Paul Graham's essays and I took a look at ARC and that wasn't really going anywhere. Um, and so the other uh, closure was the, the big up and coming uh, list uh, that was available. And so I wrote her a program that would take any sentence you give it and uh, display the words like a crossword puzzle, assuming that the word could be laid out like that. And I did that like, you know, one weekend for her birthday. And I had a lot of fun doing that. That was the moment where I was like, okay, I need to leave academia and probably return. (laughs) (laughs) So, oh my God. (laughs) But it would, it would actually take many more years before I would work in closure full time. Um, I did a whole bunch of other stuff. But you were originally, but you, you were originally trained in programming and computer science or? Yeah. Yes. How did so you... I have a degree oh, okay. in computer science from UVA. I graduated in 99 yeah. and I went to work for a couple startups. Uh, they did not make me filthy rich. Um, <laughs> and then I was sick of being in Virginia and a lot of my friends had moved to New York. So I went there, uh, mm. entered academia. So I leave academia and uh, also my b- girlfriend broke up with me that same summer. Uh, and so all of a sudden I have like no ties after to that, after that closure program as well. I mean, you know, this is, that's a harsh review. <laughs> yeah. Um, so first thing I did was go on a, a long meditation retreat, uh, for a month and a half. And then I came back to New York and started working, um, as a consultant and, I'd been, my, all my time in academia was spent with MATLAB, and I absolutely loathe mm-hmm. MATLAB. But it is very popular, especially in neuroscience. The dominant open source uh, packages are all written in MATLAB. Um, mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to do that. And I basically had to fall back on you know, my earlier era of uh, the web, which was essentially you know, PHP. Uh, so I took mm-hmm. a few jobs with that. And of course, I wasn't really happy doing it. Um, and at a certain point, you know, between gigs, uh, I was like, you know what, I'm just not going to take another job until it's in closure. Um, and I kind of responded at random to, um, the CEO of a startup called Swarmify, which is a closure script startup. They're still around. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I eventually had to leave because of, uh, the leads 
funder got a little weird and cut funding. Um, so that kind of sucked. Um, but in the middle of my time working at Swarmify, I kind of drunkenly responded to one of David Nolan's tweets on a Friday night. So <laughs> he had um, a co-working group called Kitchen Table Coders. Uh, and yeah, it yeah. inhabited some loft in like Brooklyn. And I looked it up mm. and it was only like, you know, a 15 minute walk from where I was living in a different loft in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, you know, I need a place because I, I can't work at home. I've been doing remote work for, for like forever. Mm. And I just mm. cannot get anything done in the house. It's not about having like a home office. It's just about like the temptation. Like I can just leave my home office and I could be playing the switch or talking to my wife. Yep. Any, any of these other things I could be doing. So for me, I always have to like go to a coffee shop or just get out. Um, and so I went to, I started working at Kitchen Table Coder and I got to know uh, David. Um, and uh, as I was wrapping up, David was working um, on the uh, Danish tax project, which I believe the Jay you might know about because you used to work at yeah, Flexiana. Yeah, yeah. We had a bunch of Flexiana yeah, guys yeah. come through there. Um, yes, you 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 have that look in your eyes that says, "Oh yes, I've heard about this project." <laughs> yeah, I, I've mm -hmm. heard about it, and um, uh, because uh, Cognitech when it was um, yeah essentially becoming new bank, and they wanted to offload these projects to some other companies. Usually, I think um, mm -hmm. so. They wanted to interview me, and then I I did the interview uh, with few folks, and then. I decided, well, this project is not for me. <laughs> this is this is really bureaucratic yeah, Danish government a, thingy. Yeah. And if, if I look up the history of the project, rate. it's, yeah, I'm like, no, I'm not going to do this. So I backed off and they're like, no, I'm not going to. And also because they said I need to be in um, Copenhagen pretty frequently or something. Uh, I thought mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I'm not going to fly from Netherlands and then every week or two days, whatever. Um, right. So I decided, no, I'm not going to do this. So as a, that makes yeah, sense. It was a it, fun project. Yeah. It had a lot of turnover is a polite way to yeah, put it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, David suggested I interview with Cognitech. Um, I didn't really technically interview with Cognitech. They, they brought me on as a, I mean, I did have an interview, but I wasn't not to be an employee. Uh, I was essentially an outside consultant brought in to... Mm -hmm. uh, essentially augment um, their staffing. And in fact, like, I mean, that project had to have had at least three or four different agencies because it just required so many people. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, that was lucrative if um, bureaucratic and frustrating in some ways, but the people were good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's usually never the, never the people, right? I mean, people are always fun. I mean, I, I'll, mm, if I look mm. back every... Every good project or the bad project, it's usually the style of the requirements. It's usually the style of the management. Or other than that, but with the team, there was never an issue. I mean, the team, there is always yeah. fun, good people sitting together trying to solve something. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think the intention in every project is good, but usually it's done by, managed by something in a, in a weird way or rewriting some shit for the sake of rewriting. And geez, mm -hmm. all, all sorts of weird shit shows up. And yeah. Well, Let's say I've never been on a project before that that had switched databases. Like I always heard about that <laughs> okay. as a theoretical thing, but realistically, yeah. I always yeah. assume, yeah, changing your database seems like such an incredible pain and risk that I'd never seen it happen before. Mm. And for that project, it had actually happened three times. 
three times. Yeah, and also I think the yeah, and also the and it's not switching from you know what let's switch from Postgres to MySQL, right? It's like a paradigm shifting database shift. Yeah, going from something. Yeah, before me it was uh, Datomic on Cassandra, and then they found that's kind of slow. So then they ditched Datomic and went with Cassandra. They found reads were slow because Cassandra is designed for write ingestion. Yeah, and yeah. Then for a brief shining moment, we were just going to use boring Postgres. But then for legal reasons, it was determined that a lot of the case data had to be stored uh, with this other vendor known to the Dane called um, WorkZone or something like that. And so we essentially yeah. had like a split database. We were restoring half of it through Microsoft OData calls to this other database. And then half of it uh, was in a, an event uh, system stored in Postgres. And, uh, Let's say I learn not to do that <laughs> in future endeavors. <laughs> hey, there is always there is always learning in every project. And I mean, I, I remember when I was in this process of talking to them. Like, um, I asked, you know, how is the development environment like? And once that was explained to me, I was like, no, you know, I I can't deal with these many weird shit floating around. Some Postgres I need to connect to. I cannot have any anything locally. And uh, yeah. Anyway, but yeah. zooming, zooming but, out a little bit, though, I think what's, what I find yeah. interesting about this is that it's like whenever we're doing closure stuff, it's um, that's the nice part about any project. It's all this other stuff around it where you discover the architecture is wrong, you know, the database is wrong or the connectivity is wrong or the, 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 the thing that you're trying to build is just not actually needed by the business. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or it doesn't need some, some requirement. You know, the, these are the kind of things which kind of like make everyone miserable, essentially. You know, yeah. um, was that your experience as well? Essentially, that it's like, because I think that's what you're sort of a little bit inferring, VJ, is like the building thing, like the making of the thing is usually because engineers like, like essentially get told what the requirements are and then just do their best to make it happen. You know, and that's the fun part. It's it's mm-hmm. all this kind of like higher level uh, stuff that is essentially a problem. Um, oh yeah, but, you know, it's difficult because it's difficult. It's difficult for me to accept as somebody who thinks and uh, feels very strongly about the language I use. Um, mm. But that's actually really a small part of what makes success in a project. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's really. I mean, you know, people have been writing great stuff. Low-level stuff in C for decades. In, in every C, yeah, C, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's a difference between, for me at least, anyway, was writing stuff in C or Java or whatever, and experiencing a much more expressive, like, yeah, I would say that a more joyful way of writing programs in Clojure than you can in these other languages. So that, I think that's the difference. Is I mean, in the end, mm-hmm. you can. It doesn't matter what the language is, you'll get it right or wrong. You know, that's for sure. But as a sort mm-hmm. of participant in the process, I much prefer doing it in closure than in other languages. Oh, for sure. For sure. I I forget which study it was, but they were talking about programmer happiness. And you know, Go and Closure routinely rank very high on those metrics. And I've been thinking about well, what actually unifies those two languages in terms of programmer happiness because they, they seem at the surface very different mm-hmm. I and mean, it can't be the use of communicating sequential processes or anything like that um i think it has to do with the very tight feedback loops involved because go has a notoriously fast compiler 
mm-hmm. to the point that you can uh, kind of explore like you know your your the type the compiler errors you get in an almost REPL like manner it can happen that fast. And then obviously mm-hmm. Lisp do have a REPL, and so you can do that kind of exploratory programming. And people talk about this, but I actually feel like that's kind of an undersold superpower of you know really high quality REPLs like the Lisps have. And maybe Smalltalk had this as well. I've, I've been curious, but I've never mm-hmm. played around with Smalltalk. Um, and I think it's because there's just so much less to keep in, in mind when you have a very tight feedback loop. There's fewer things that can go wrong. And anything that does go wrong, it's much easier to identify what went wrong and fix it. Because essentially, mm-hmm. the, the longer between when you create an error and when you fix it, the more things you have to keep in memory, the more things that could possibly be the cause of your problem. Yeah. Um, you know, That's obviously, well it, yeah. Obviously, something that makes but it as a as a, as a as a counterexample, or maybe just a uh, point of an argument. Um, don't you think it's it's the similar way if you have quote unquote sound programs in the languages like Haskell or or, or some other way where you can tighten the the program with types and you know that part is going to work so you can focus on the other part I'm, I'm talking about how much stuff that i need to keep in my mind when i'm working on uh working on a piece of code that with with right. closure as you're mentioning i can i can quickly bounce back between different things but isn't it that don't you think it the same so principle applies in the other situations so i'm not okay so i'm not totally sure well okay so i haven't really done any haskell programming i can't really comment mm-hmm. on what it is like as an experience um, yeah. The impression I get from, okay, like like generally, you know, closures are not going to find it too controversial to say that, like, obviously, types can't solve all of your problems. Every bug yeah. you've ever written has made yeah. it through the type system. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's an open question, and obviously, you know, if you if you're getting the business logic wrong, you know, you may or may not be able to encode that in types. Or mm-hmm. I, I can't actually say about Haskell. Um, I do think, though, that types add an extra burden on uh, the working memory system. And I'm not actually mm-hmm. sure if it's working memory that's even really the issue. Uh, so I'd, mm. every so often I'll, I'll do, I'll try to like marry my two major experiences, to, you know, the, the cognitive neuroscience side and like yeah. programmer side. And there is shockingly yeah. little written about that. Uh, very few people have truly explored uh, the psychology of writing code. Um, mm-hmm. There has been some stuff written, and it's almost always uh, for newcomers. You know, what is the, the process by which newbies start to learn to write code? Uh, and mm-hmm. some of it is, um, you know, they'll, they'll analyze like the corpus of code written in GitHub and try to make uh, inferences from that. Uh, but in terms of actually being like, you know, what's going through your head when you're writing code? There's very little written about that. Um, do, do you think like programming needs to be added to DSM? eight or something that this is going to be one of the well, one I think a lot of us have something wrong with us for sure <laughs> <laughs> something ain't right like, oh, I'm going to check everything yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> and it's a very specific way of thinking or processes happening in the brain to become a programmer but, but, but don't you think yeah. it's like it's an interesting question in the sense that when people are designing languages they they very rarely have this idea of joy in their mind they're trying often to solve one thing i mean i know matt's famously says that ruby is yeah. for programmer joy but you know 
can he prove that? I don't know. I mean, obviously, a lot of Rubyists think that it's a you know kind of like let's say lived experience is true, but you know I've done Ruby and I don't think it's that joyful. But you know, I mean, it I was. Say, well, I mean, it was. If you are coming from Java and then first time you build a Ruby on Rails application, you're like, holy crap, this is amazing. That's what, Ruby on what Rails. What have been so doing with the J two E and no, but but you're starting with I mean the Rails way of building is enabled by the features in the language, like all the monkey patching that you can do, all the syntactical things that you could do, the whole active record stuff, and all this is, is enabled by the language. I understand features, that, right? but my point is that yeah, programming yeah. Ruby per se yeah. is not, it wasn't specifically joyful for me. I mean, I, I dropped out before Fair Ruby enough. on Rails, so yeah, mm. that's a different that is the, way of that's, programming that's something. A, that's a, yeah. That's a really interesting point because then joy is a subjective experience, right? So I cannot design sure. for your joy. So how would somebody design a programming language? It's easier to say I'm going to. No, but my point is that he language. explicitly said that that was something that he was going for, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. But the interesting question to me, moreover, is like, can it even be true? You know, can can the act yeah, of programming yeah, yeah. ever bring any joy? I mean, maybe that's to I, your point. Matthew, I think the you know? answer is is definitely yes. Um, there's a long literature on, you know, what called uh, flow by Mikhail uh, I'm totally butchering his name. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's, you know, studied the concept of flow, like being in the zone, yeah. mostly in terms of things like music performance and athletics. Um, and I don't know that anybody really looked at that in coding, but I definitely feel in the zone sometimes. What I find, you know, really interesting is why does it take so long to get into that? Like, if I sit down at you know my laptop and I start coding, like oh, I've got to open this, I've got to open these tabs, and I've got to like review this documentation, and uh, what was I doing here? Oh yes, I need to like look at the bookmarks I saved and double check that. And it, it can take like a good twenty to thirty minutes before I've really settled in, and then like I can code with you know maximal performance, and I feel like I am in the zone. And and then you know some sometimes the hours can just fly by when you're doing that. Yeah. Um, and I would love to see what exactly affects that. Uh, for example, to the extent that, so it can't possibly be working memory that we're relying on because working memory itself is super, super limited. Uh, there's a very famous psych paper uh, by Jordan Miller, I think called magic number seven plus or minus two being the number of things that we can hold in, in memory. And uh, that's actually the number of of chunks that can be held in memory. And it turns out you know, later research shows it's even lower than that. It's more like five plus or minus one. Um, but we don't actually hold everything we're doing in working memory. So I think it's more about uh, prepping the parts of the brain that are going to be called on, uh, sort of like a like spreading activation by like by thinking about something, uh, you're prepping it to be used as necessary. And I'm not exactly clear how it all, all plays. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, below the surface, it's, it's subconscious. Um, yeah. But to the extent that I think, you know, working memory is taxed at all, I, I keep fantasizing that one day I will get around to writing an Emacs plugin that actually keeps track of the number of free variables at any given line. And it will like highlight the line based on how many free variables there are. And it gets progressively, you know, redder and more al alarming looking as you keep adding <laughs> uh, names that you have to keep track of. And yeah, I don't yeah. know where like global variables would fit with this, but um, hey, that's a nice, nice that, segue into my 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 question. Like, do you <laughs> do you use Emacs or some other shit? Apparently, it looks like it's only Emacs. <laughs> no, um, I used to use Emacs. 
I stopped yeah. because uh, this was back in because it was Spotify fucking days. awful. Yeah, sorry. Okay, <laughs> no, no. There's there's things I love about Emacs and things sure. I loathe about Emacs. Yeah. So it's a yeah. a bit of a mixed bag for me. Um, I stopped because I was doing this during the Swarmify days, and it's all ninety percent closure script. And Cider had some sort of weird closure script issue for like a month that was driving me crazy, and I just switched yeah. to IntelliJ and Cursive mm. and. I just haven't bothered to switch off yet. And it's been helpful, especially for like <laughs> Java interop, uh, which I've yeah. been doing more of lately. Um, hmm. There's a, an awful lot of that in, in Aleph. But, but yeah, coming so. back to your coming back to your point though about the free variables and stuff, are you talking about like the number of let bindings that you have or the number of vars or what? what uh, maybe just yeah. so I can like... Uh, <laughs> interpret it. In the, no, no, no. Uh, you, you you have the right interpretation. Um, let binding would be obviously more salient because they're they're local. Mm -hmm. uh, but technically, any you know global var could theoretically uh, in, be relevant. Um, but I think intuitively, like our brain is somehow discarding most of those because they're just not relevant. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think it would be a cool Emacs plugin. I have no idea if it would actually reveal any deep insights into how programmers code it would be interesting because that does match some of our intuitive understanding that like you know shorter yeah, yeah. functions are easier to understand um stuff like that yeah but i do think okay. you're right that i mean basically if you're operating on inputs to a function and you're having some let bindings and you're doing some actions and then you you return some values and it's all kind of like right there on the page in like 10 lines or 20 lines that is so much so much more grokable than these side effecting systems, you know. And I think maybe it's functional programming in general, if you if you kind of like stick to that pattern, will be will be sort of let's say more comfortable in the brain, you know. Mm -hmm. For sure. I don't know if you feel like that. Yeah, pure functions are obviously you know much easier to reason about, um, and. I mean, going by that working memory example, that you could say the answer is, well, you know that once the function is returned, there's nothing else you need to keep in mind about that function. You know, it hasn't somehow screwed over another function in another thread somewhere else. Anyway, this is just my but pet but this, but, Yeah, but honestly, but this is huge. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, when you do Java interop, you, you, know, you realize that you're, you're looking at some frameworks, Amazon frameworks or Spring or whatever, and the side effects fucking everywhere. And it's mm -hmm. it's really difficult to grok what the hell is going on, and and I find that incredibly stressful to be honest. You know, and it's one of the reasons oh. why I don't like Java anymore, or those kind of like non-functional programming environments because it just hurts my head too much. You yeah. know, going back to the joy aspect of things, you know, that is misery. That is miserating to me. You know, maybe we can argue what joy is, but I know what misery looks like. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so the joy is absence of that misery. <laughs> well, we just say. I'd like to think it's a bit more definition. than that, but at least I you know. It's yeah. like, I know. I know what pain is. You know, so. closure is yeah. the programming equivalent of stop banging your head against the wall. Yeah, I, I like. There's a, there's a sort of this is like a Sam Harris like concept. Sam Harris is somewhat discredited in general. I think as a neuroscientist, but but he has this idea of like. That, that joy is the absence of pain or that, you know, our, our goal in life is to reduce the amount of pain in the world. I mean, I think this is all horseshit, frankly, but 
But I, I would certainly say that like the idea that absence of pain, absence of pain does not equal joy. That's for sure. Right. You know? So I think yeah. there's something more. But but I definitely think that there are there are situations where you definitely experience misery and upset. And like I said, that's side affecting things in general and free variables and all these things where you have to play a computer more. Those are mm-hmm. things which I think like erode joy pretty quickly. Oh, for sure. And, and that's coming back to Brett Victor, actually, isn't it? That you were talking about right at the beginning, you know, how Brett Victor is saying, we want to try and use the computers to let them play a computer, let them be computer and let us reveal through systems, through, you know, work, what right. is important and interesting. Right. I, I wasn't thinking about, uh, I haven't seen that one in a, in a long time. The, the, the Brett Victor inspiration for what I'm working on now is more about, uh, he built this whole website for exploring ideas for saving the environment. Oh, okay. The essay. That, that was the one in particular yeah. I was thinking of. Um, and there's inventing from first principle. That's that's the interactivity yeah. one, right? The inventing mm. inventing on principle. Yeah. And inventing the, on uh, principle. Mm, yeah. That's the one I'm referring to, yeah. Um sweet. Sam Harris said that joy is the absence of pain. No, no, he said that he said that if you if you want to be if you want to like work out what um huh, what should we say? What a non Christian version of morality is. Then it's about reducing pain in the world. Oh, oh yeah, kind of that like sounds a bit, that sounds I mean, more reasonable. I don't think that is. I don't think that was the. I don't know. Maybe I'm talking from the purely Hindu version of it. I mean, it's more about accepting the pain rather than actually, I don't know, trying to remove the pain from the world because we all also thought like, oh, everything is Maya, so fuck it. So you know, right? That, that's well, the that <laughs> The, the I, think, I, think, I think would be that that uh, pain is is mandatory, but suffering is optional. Yeah, there's like the actual yeah. pain you experience, and then there's all the extra that you heap on in your head. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think I think the maybe, maybe that's the Eastern. I think yeah. it's a, it's a, it's like a lot of a it ends up being a sort of debate bro type um, argument where you 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 put some like planks on the bottom like that. And then you end up saying Islam is terrible, you know. And it's like, hang on, mate. <laughs> you know, it's a, you've carefully constructed this, this sort of uh, you know, these set of planks, and then you then you're now criticizing a religion yeah, or a group that's, or that's, whatever, that's bullshit. you know. And I think that's that's the thing that I didn't like about his his argumentation. Really, um, is that you know, you kind of work you work on this like. Difficult to argue principle that pain is bad, you know, <laughs> but you can't automatically leap from that to you know certain activities that, mm-hmm. in in some subjective manner, might uh, might cause some pain to some people, is bad. Well, I think I think what, anyway. what we're trying to do is pain is bad, and then switch to closure is better. <laughs> Just leap from <laughs> pain is bad to closure is better. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's really what it is. Yeah, that is exactly what it is. <laughs> there is a tagline to increase adoption. Closure beats pain. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Less pain with closure. Yeah. Oh, it's like the anodin. The anodin of programming, or what do you call it in America, where you have these like headache tablets, paracetamol or something. You know? Oh, yeah. 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 The paracetamol of programming. Yeah, it's not the panacea, <laughs> but the paracetamol. <laughs> right, right.
You call it instead of anyway. minifin for some reason. I have no idea why. Oh. Ibuprofen, maybe? That's, is that an international? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, so, I mean, been, uh, I think the other generic yeah. names are standardized, but for some reason it's paracetamol in most of the world and acetaminophen mm. in the United States. Okay. Oh. I can't explain that. Damn stupid, what is it? Non-metric system, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I like knowing how many furlongs are in a pint, though. Anyway, but um, so uh, going back to your your joy, journey, so joy, come on, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, are you still working on the Danish project, or that was part of the uh, part of the journey? So, yeah, uh, Cognitech wrapped up their involvement shortly after the new bank acquisition was announced. Um, they pretty much wound down all of their consulting. And I uh, stuck with them for another over half a year. Uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. Uh, but no, I left that uh, right around the same time. So almost a year ago now, a little over a year mm-hmm. ago. It was right when I left yeah. Indonesia, I left that project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, what I had been working on all of last year is, uh, I mean, I don't know how much your listeners want to hear about uh, starting up a uh, software as a service versus we closure, definitely but... want to hear about this of course okay yeah. of course uh yeah. well it's it's you know it's, a, it's definitely a bit of a stretch i've always enjoyed coding and uh was always a little skeptical of those marketing and sales guys but i find myself in the position of having to learn a lot of that stuff um so <laughs> yeah. the first most painful lesson i learned last year is uh you need to find the problem before you write the solution and I think a lot of engineers who go solo have this exact problem because we fall in love with the way we think things should be. And we have the technical chops to make that happen. So in my case, uh, I have terrible hearing. I was, you know, born with absolute crap for hearing and I've worn hearing aids for a long, long time. And I pretty much watch everything mm-hmm. with subtitles. Um, and when I was in the middle of the Danish project, I started like a little side venture, not really venture, a, a side project to start to uh, bring that technology um, to the browser. So, for example, mm-hmm. you know, YouTube has like a closed caption button that will you can click it and it'll show mm-hmm. captions. It'll even machine uh, learning generate them if they don't exist yet. Uh, Microsoft Teams has a, a button you can push and it'll try to caption yes. everybody in your team. So, yeah. you know, the technology for that is there. They've been offered of cloud services for a few years now. Um, and I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll just like take any audio source running through the browser, uh, do a, a live transcription of this and stream it as subtitles to be displayed. And I was working on this, you know, on nights and weekends, but I still had my day job and, you know, mm-hmm. my wife and you know, friends and all sorts of other things going on. And uh, my old boss from Swarmify, uh, came back one day and said, Matthew, I'm so sorry. I'm like, sorry, about what? <laughs> Did you see the announcement? So Google basically announced they were going to add that for free as part of Chrome, as part of their accessibility measures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I was building was actually going to be a little bit nicer because I was doing segmentation technology to figure out when and where to display it. So what Chrome does is just an endlessly scrolling wall of text. And what I was going to do would be more like traditional movie subtitles. Um, so it would be oh, less yeah, of a yeah. cognitive load. But it would have only been like a few percent better and probably nobody would have wanted it. So I shelved that for a bit. And then last year, I started thinking about 
um, another idea I'd had, which is a way to improve transcription accuracy by essentially looking at multiple sources and then looking at where they differ. So I figured it was the kind of thing that, you know, the, the really big companies like Microsoft and Amazon couldn't easily do because it would involve having multiple teams all write the same models and then do like majority vote. So if two out of three mm. transcriptions agree on a word, that's the word you go with. Um, and then mm. the odd one just gets you know, tossed. And this would actually work to improve accuracy as long as their errors weren't correlated. But because they're coming from different companies, which is the way I was building this, essentially you would talk to Google, Azure, and AWS and compare their outputs. Um, to the extent that they weren't correlated, it would work out really well. And you know, mm. mathematically, I'd have been able to eliminate about 40% of the errors, existing errors in transcription. The problem I ran into was, even though this, you know, this would have worked, uh, nobody cared. <laughs> so, the, you know, I, I started Damn it. forcing myself to actually do the, you know, customer research part that, you know, many startups want to avoid. Um, yeah. But I started talking to, to people who use, you know, machine learning transcription tech or even human transcription tech. And yeah. they kind of fell into two camps. One camp were the people who had super high accuracy needs. We're talking fields like um, medical fields, uh, legal fields. They, you know, they've done transcription for a long, long time, and they have like specialist human transcriptions who finish it, and they yes. need, you know, very high accuracy because if you get something wrong, you know, somebody will overdose on their drugs or get sued. Yeah. Um, the other camp were people who were using it for whatever. You know, maybe they were transcribing their notes, maybe they were like keeping minutes from a meeting, and the yeah, occasional. Yeah. Do you offer transcriptions of this podcast? No, not really. Because no, shame, no. <laughs> shame. We, we, wait, we, I did try <laughs> the the Amazon recognition thing uh, a few. Uh, I think last year, two years ago, it was uh -huh. shit. I Many it couldn't understand yeah. my accent, obviously, and then raise. Yeah. And every time we say closure, it's closure, and oh god, and and all a lot of problems it, with accents. Yeah, and all the bleeping stuff that we say that that it can't try, you know, <laughs> it can't put the thing out, and yeah, it's, yeah. But yeah, yeah. actually, two days ago, um, uh, Dieter, I think, uh, on Mastodon, he mentioned he was using uh, some service uh, to to do the transcription. It was pretty reasonable, and there is also an open source one called Mac Whisper or Mac Whisper. Uh, I'm just that's on my to do list to try. But yeah, anyway, yeah. that's as an aside. Yeah. I think, I mean, if you're looking for one, uh, rev.com was a competitor that seemed to be pretty good. Um, so mm. no, we'll just use them. yours. So no worry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I shall, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the people for whom they don't need like super high accuracy, they just didn't care. Like yeah. if it was mm. with a clean recording, you know, they were probably, and no accents, they were probably going to get something in the range of 95% plus accuracy. And yeah. whether I moved the needle to 97% accuracy, they just didn't care. So yeah. I eventually set that, set that aside and started thinking about other stuff. Um, and for a few years now, I've kept an idea journal on and off, mostly off, but I do uh, just uh, keep any random idea, just write it down. And many of them are absolutely terrible. And in fact, in order to like, you know, get a lot of them out there, you have to have plenty of terrible ideas. But some of the good ones will resurface. Um, I got this mm -hmm. idea from um, what's his name, not Derek Sivers. 
uh, I'll, I'll figure it out later. But uh, he suggested this. And one of the ideas I had had to do with a performance system. Um, so and this kind of came back to like, you know, wanting to do something for the environment and also finding something that I feel like is kind of neglected and, you know, wanting not to waste CPU cycles, even though I'm using a high level language. You know, I like to, I also like making things randomly efficient, uh, you know, yeah. upgrading my packages in the hopes that it'll be faster. Uh, yeah. I can't explain that. It's, it's some sort of weird little compulsion. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so I thought, well, why don't, you know, why aren't people keeping track of their performance budgets? You know, hmm. at a high level, everybody knows they should, you know, and for something to be interactive, it has to happen in, you know, less than like a tenth of a second. Um, you know, if you look at web pages, like every, you know, 100 milliseconds added before, you know, the web page is ready means X, you know, amount of lost revenue or whatever, if you're e-commerce, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, but virtually nobody does that, at least not at like the levels I've worked at, small and, and medium businesses for the most part. And mm -hmm. my thought was, well, why not just turn the unit test into performance test? It really shouldn't be that hard. And so what I'm working on, I've, I've called it Speedorino because I'm a big uh, Lebowski dork. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and the idea is that I'm, right now I'm building it for closure. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to transform your unit test into performance test. It's going to be built with the Java micro benchmark harness. Uh, turns out there's a lot of really uh, deep subtleties to benchmarking correctly. Uh, Criterium is yep. good for, you know, off the cuff stuff, but if you really need replicability, like, so what I, I want to do is, you know, given a code base, I'll look at all the, all of the commits and then turn your unit test into performance test and see how the performance changes over time. So I can identify uh, cases where like, ah, you added this, you know, and it looks correct, but you're clearly something was inefficient because, you know, this function slowed down by like hundred percent, you know, you're using the wrong data yep. structure, something along those lines. Um, and but isn't uh, it, it turns out a, there is a for the performance test. Aren't there like more of the context? Because I'm wondering, like, what is your control variable is going to be, and if there are like too many confounding results, then you can't really pinpoint this is right. the uh, uh, reason. So, and, and there might be like you know something that is masking, like because I'm using M2 to do on my laptop right. with, with the performance thing. So yeah. So yeah, so there's there's a couple issues to the replicability. Um, well, mm -hmm. let me make sure we're, we're talking about the same thing. Like one is ensuring yeah. that like you rerun the test later and want to compare the numbers that something in the environment hasn't changed. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So because there needs to be re reproducibility, and there is a context that I need to know to know that yes, this is going to perform right. as expected based on the results. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, replicability is something I'm still working on. The basic yep. idea is just to have uh, get your own hardware box in the cloud, make sure nothing yep. else is running on it, uh, mm -hmm. make sure mm -hmm. it's always the same instance type. Um, that's going to be the best bet. It, it, uh, but yep. I will admit, I still need to like figure out the numbers on this to see just how replicable it is. Especially for the mm -hmm. faster unit test, you're going to have a lot more variance just by sheer size alone. Yep. Um, but that's part of why something like Criterium would never work. Uh, it's just mm. going to have a little too much variability. Uh, you also yeah. need to do things like uh, prevent safe point bias. You need to ensure that 
you know, function calls are monomorphic. Uh, like yep. the JIT compiler itself can change performance numbers if you simply exactly. compile yep. some more code. Um, mm. And so, the, you know, the, the way the, uh, the Java micro benchmark harness JMH handles that is by essentially forking the Java process and only compiling and running exactly the code that you're testing. And so there's no other, I mean, you can get around that if you wanted to feed it, but you know, that's, that's not the point. Um, mm. But because literally nothing else other than like the JMH and the code you're testing uh, is being run, you know that like, you know, the sites are monomorphic. Uh, nothing else mm. has been compiled that will interfere yeah. with that. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm working on. It uh, should be it's should be ready for a beta soon. I think I'm, I'm messing around a lot and rewrite CLJC and yeah. uh, transforming unit test and tricky part is uh, um, getting the um, uh, handling essentially like all of the uh, the fixtures uh, your pre and yeah, your yeah. setup and teardown. Uh, those essentially have to be moved and transformed and then also excluded from the analysis themselves. Yeah, so Matthew, I mean, coming back to your, maybe I kind of like missed this, but coming back to your point earlier on about the, the transcribing and people not caring, what is the identified like audience or what, what's the motivation that people have for caring about this stuff? Um, so the major reason for it is to avoid deploying performance issues to production. So you might have code that passes your test suite in terms of correctness, but if you weren't paying attention because your test suite takes 20 minutes to run, and then you know some part of it takes, you know, now takes 25 minutes and you've introduced some performance problem, you don't want to deploy that and then find out you have a problem. And production is always going to see the heaviest loads. You know, you're not going to detect it usually on a development uh, machine or a staging server unless you're specifically load testing. Um, now, turning unit tests into performance tests you know, has some limitations for sure. Uh, unit tests are not really designed for that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But the alternative is nobody's writing benchmark uh, testing. Yeah. Nobody's doing this no, to I mean, begin this with. This is so... certainly one, one dimension, right? Like the, the dimension that you're tackling is the unit test being converted because Obviously, if you zoom out, then performance would require the whole system to be tested. Like, you know, yeah. is the database that is going to be slow? Is the network or is something else? Or right. me waiting on right. my thread is waiting on something else to be available. So I think, but this is a, probably the one dimension. Yeah. Yeah. This is like CI for performance. Like, you yeah. know, with deployed servers, you're going to use something like APM and you'll, mm. you'll find out if a query is really slow or mm. if some server yeah. is being overloaded. But by that point, it, it might be too late to avoid the problem. And so this yeah. is maybe a way of inserting another step into your, well, a parallel step in your CI pipeline that can tell you like, hey, this function is like radically slowed down. Maybe you should double check this. Mm. And, and so. is, is your kind of like, let's say research, um, suggesting that that happens more than like, like dependency changes or the infrastructure changes or... Like like VGA says, someone writes about query, which you're not gonna like run in your unit tests. Yeah. Um, you know what what sort of percentage of performance comes from the unit tests, the the sort of raw functions essentially. 
my intuition yeah, is that not much, but I mean, you know, I, I'm prepared <laughs> to be, I'm prepared to be persuaded. <laughs> well, this can be more valuable. So, okay, I say unit tests, but a lot of people abuse unit tests for integration tests. In that yes, sense, yes. it's more valuable. Definitely. So, to the extent, yeah. so like a pure unit test, yeah, probably not. But if you you know shoehorned other tests into your suite, then yes, this will. And hopefully those are more ecologically valid and will represent you know, code mm -hmm. that you're actually running and can give you a better idea like, okay, this whole, you know, retrieve customer or, you know, add product mm -hmm. procedure has like slowed down. So, I mean, it's, you know, still a bit of an experiment. I don't, I won't know for sure until we see if anybody bites. My unsolicited MBA <laughs> shitty advice would be that, you know, you don't mention unit tests, but you say that, hey, your test suite will be used as a performance test benchmark. Then suddenly you're not talking about unit tests anymore. Because my, my assumption is that when you say unit tests, then I'm thinking, wait a minute, when I write a unit test, then let's say I'm dealing with a smaller you know, map yeah. in the unit test that I mocked. But in production, uh, I've seen situations where a function taking like fucked enough time because in production, we didn't expect the map is going to have so many keys and so many things and whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. but if 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 I hear it's going to use unit tests, but rather than it says, hey, it's a CI for, for performance and it's gonna take your test suite and then give you performance results. I think that that's that has a different ring in my mind. Again, yeah. this is a that's completely a unsolicited, you know, like random. No, no, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm still uh, writing things so. like how to write website copy too. So Oh um, yeah, yeah. That's, I think that's, I do uh, mention the, I think I do mention unit tests, so maybe I could just say test. We'll see. Yeah, because because I mean, when you explained it in a, in a way, when you know, obviously when Ray is asking like, "Hey, is it unit tests?" and when you said, "Wait, tests are not uh, not everybody just sticking to um, let me write unit tests this particular small function passing one mm -hmm. or two because yeah. because the quote unquote performance for those things can also be done with at least my uh, understanding is that uh, using generative testing you can actually run like a heuristic of you know different sizes of data and then mm -hmm. um, reduce the tree and then see what is the minimal thing that is failing i mean it's not testing performance obviously it's only testing the correctness of the of the function using right. quick check or something like that but uh, the if you say test suite then like oh that makes sense because usually we uh, one of the projects that i'm working on has redis and all of these things so even in the test we we bring up redis because it's super fast to bring it up and then just test it again as that one so it's not a mm -hmm. unit test per se. Right. It's actually doing the work that we want to do. So it makes sense. Uh, I'd say that's actually sense. quite, I'd say I agree with Vijay. I think that's quite common. You know, when you're doing like, because the way Docker works now, you can kind of do it. So, so it's relatively simple in these like um, CI systems to bring up a Docker version of the database or the search engine or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then essentially just write a bunch of, you know, integration queries, you know, using the real yeah. thing, even though if it's not the same scale. Um, I yeah. think you would generally find a quite a good performance. Uh, yeah, quite good. That's a good source of performance measurement there because you will you will at least see the stack, even if you don't right. see like the whole the whole like suite of data. You will see the whole mm. stack through. So that could be. I, yeah, I can buy that one for sure. Yeah, I, I won't use the word unit on, in my sales copy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> free consultancy from the deaf and boys here. <laughs> God damn it! You don't say free. <laughs> I was I was trying to negotiate the percentage in the startup. <laughs> okay, that's, the, that's my bad. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll 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 look into the deal sheet later. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but but I'm curious about the about the technical stuff though, because you mentioned Criterium, um, you know, to do the micro benchmarking, and do you see any challenges there? Like you know, because performance would mean that you need to run it multiple times, some statistical stuff that you need to deal with. Yeah, so it is essentially going to be some multiple of how long it takes your test suite to execute to begin mm. with. So. I'm not sure that it should necessarily. I've been toying around with like, you know, well, how do you report this in, you know, your GitHub PR? Should it be a blocker? Yeah, yeah. Probably not. Uh, or maybe it yeah. could be, but it shouldn't necessarily block before it's returned. But essentially, yeah. yes, you do for statistical purposes, you have to rerun, uh, even if you're, you're controlling everything else and nothing else is running. Uh, you, you know, you can be subject to the whims of like cache and, memory yeah, and yeah. who knows what and so you do have to rerun yeah. it multiple times and typically there's like a bunch of warm-up runs and then like a handful of like straight up runs uh and then you just record the timing um mm. so yes yeah nice so staying on the on the same closure side so how did you start picking up the aleph and manifold and you know these yeah. projects from from zach is it something like a well so just this came about because, so this, this goes back to when I was still messing around with transcription tech on the side. Um, mm. I had used core async very heavily uh, in, on the closure script side of things. But, you know, I never, it, it was the best of a bunch of terrible alternatives in, in JavaScript. Um, mm. But I wasn't feeling quite the same way about it in like backend closure. Uh, in particular, I never liked that it never really had like a, an error model. Um, mm. one Cognitech actually told me Corey sync is beautiful nonsense and <laughs> I haven't forgotten <laughs> that. Uh, so I started playing around with manifold and, you know, it did things a little differently. Uh, but for the most mm. part it worked and I liked how it, you know, I didn't have to recreate, uh, the same take macro that would then throw with a gotten exception for the umpteenth time. Uh, and so I was building that transcription tech. Uh, very heavily in, in Manifold because there's a lot of like, it seemed to be a good fit. There are a lot of streams. I was like uh, retrieving a URL uh, from the browser side. And then I was like streaming the actual video from wherever the browser was getting it. And then I was then, mm -hmm. uh, I had like a processing stream where I would extract the audio and then stream that out because all of this had to happen in real time. I needed it to happen mm -hmm. before you reach the point in the video where you needed to see that uh, subtitle. And so mm -hmm. I couldn't wait for, you know, for the entire file to download. I had to like do everything streaming as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And then I would be streaming out the audio to like AWS and GCP and Azure, and then collecting all of those streams. And, you know, if I'd gotten a little bit further, I was going to have to make some uh, decisions about, you know, stale data. Like if you hadn't reported back by like, you know, I don't know, 200 or 300 milliseconds before the subtitle was due to appear, I was just going to have to ignore that service. Um, yeah. I never quite reached that point, but the point is I was doing a lot of like streaming work. And so I was getting very familiar with Manifold. Um, and then at a certain point that kind of just posted, uh, that he was, you know, moving on from closure and that, uh, maintaining, you know, all of his closure libraries and would anybody like to yeah. do something with them? And, mm -hmm. uh, I raised my hand, uh, as did like a dozen other individuals and companies and I was the only one who showed up, actually. Um, I really, I, I just sort of fell into it um, because I, I needed it to you know, do stuff. And 
I believed a lot in giving back to the community. Uh, that's for me what open source is about. Uh, and I've mm. been the beneficiary of, you know, so many lovely libraries over the years and I wanted to share. And so I started working on Manifold at first, but it quickly became clear most people were less interested in a pure streaming library and more interested in Aleph as a web server. Um, yeah. And so I, you know, I hadn't really done much Aleph before becoming, you know, lead maintainer. Uh, and mm. I, it's still like a, a massive code base. Um, and Zach's, Zach's a cool guy, but, you know, for a fellow who wrote a book about, you know, closure style, it's very <laughs> obvious that Manifold and Aleph were written in the early days of closure because they don't follow a lot of his style. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you have to, you have to write, you know, about your mistakes. Shitty code to <laughs> that No, I mean, yeah, exactly. exactly. But like, there's a ton of uh, death inline usage. I had never seen that in the wild until Ooh. looking at uh, man okay. Manifold and Aleph. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, I mean, and, and some of the Potemkin usage is also bonkers. It, there's some really interesting stuff going on. Hmm. Um, and luckily, you know, it, it it was a bit much to 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 handle. But luckily, as you know, hmm. people started to see that Aleph was. You know, things were starting to slowly happen again. Uh, some people have, uh, you know, stepped up to help out. Um, mostly, um, uh, I forget his name. Uh, so there's Arno from Exascale and Der Groot Moritz is his handle. I'm blanking on his name for a second. Um, but they are, they're both at Exascale and they've both been helping out a lot. And a few people mm. have like stepped up for other libraries like Manifold and Gloss and Bayou Streams. Mm. And, um, Eric Assam at uh, um, CLJ Commons has been really helpful. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I kind of just fell into it. And then I think, did Arno suggest you talk to me? Or was that somebody else? Or It was a colleague of Arno, Wouter, who does yeah, the audio. Okay. He works at okay. Uh, Exascale. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was a little surprised, but a welcome surprise. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> oh, it's a total pleasure. Yeah. We're, we're always uh, looking for uh, looking for you know interesting discussions anyway. So it's a, it's a, always it's looking a for much chum to feed the audience. Oh yeah, <laughs> chum for the sharks. <laughs> no, but is it is it just the maintenance or or do do you have like um, of course the code quality? You know, um, it seems like a. Uh, continuous perpetual work in every project like yeah every project I mean, this, none of the projects you know are are following any any guidelines to the t so. yeah i mean a web server is a, a huge piece of tech and, and even though it's yeah. built off of netty uh i mean there's just mm. a lot uh just for you know dealing with bug reports and squashing bugs um, yeah. mm. netty itself is quite a complicated beast isn't it yeah yeah, yeah for sure and it's evolving, um, so you know. We'll see how how that goes. So, you know, I, I was looking with uh, what's his name, the the missionary guy, Leonel. I think his name is. Uh, I forget who I was talking with last fall about you know what what does Project Loom mean for us uh, doing concurrency mm. libraries, and mm. you know it's interesting because Manifold would almost certainly not be built the way it is if virtual threads, you know, had panned out right, I think, right. a decade yeah. ago. Yeah. Uh, Netty has kind of the same problem. If virtual mm -hmm. threads really do work out the way people hope, 
then the entire like you know event-driven programming is less appealing. Like if threads are literally that cheap, then we would mm. just use future for everything. Maybe. Mm. I mean, there's Netty has a lot of value in the uh, network protocols that it has, but it would almost certainly be built differently. Um, mm. I've toyed around with altering Manifold to speak virtual threads, but I, I, I'm not sure if it'll be worth it. Honestly, we'll see. Mm. I have so many other things I need to do anyway. Um, <laughs> I got a grant from Closures Together to uh, upgrade Aleph. And so we're going to be bringing HTTP2 support to it. Um, and if okay. uh, we have enough time, I'll try to add HTTP3. Mm -hmm. We'll see how that goes. But what, what, is the, what is the main difference then between, well, 1.1, 2, 3, 4, 4, for people like me? So or just the, the users biggest thing HTTP2 brings is um, multiplexing over a single TCP socket. So oh, okay. uh, in the HTTP, HTTP 1.1 days, uh, you were typically, you know, you would form multiple connections to a server mm. uh, because you couldn't reuse a connection while you're waiting for one piece. So if you, mm. you're getting a video on one, you know, socket, then you can't simultaneously uh, be requesting some JavaScript or you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. HTTP 2 allows you to multiplex and you just designate, you know, uh, everything has a stream attached to it within the socket. And so you can like send multiple pieces. If the image isn't ready, it doesn't block the whole socket. You can you know, start sending some JavaScript and also requests, that kind of thing. Um, mm. I think for most of the users, it'll be pretty invisible, except that yeah. uh, it will, will probably involve less socket contention, that's for sure. I don't think most people will really see a difference. You know, we're planning on maintaining backwards compatibility, which for the most part is you know, a ring map. You get a request mm -hmm. map, you return a response. The only thing Aleph really does different from uh, standardized ring is you can return deferreds uh, or streams mm -hmm. and it'll like slowly stream out the bodies that way. Um, and I plan mm -hmm. to maintain that. Um, if we have time, I would like to expose a lot more of the HTTP2 uh, you know, bells and whistles, uh, prioritization and flow control are the big ones. So you mm -hmm. can say, I want this stream to be higher priority than that stream. Um, oh, okay. How well that will work out in practice and how many people will use it, I don't know. Uh, I know there was an HTTP2 feature called push promises where you can essentially send something uh, that doesn't really have a re request for it yet. So if you're sending like a web page and you know, like, I know they're going to need this JavaScript, I might as well just send it right now. Then you can do that before yeah. the browser actually parses the page and then makes the request. In practice, that has worked out terribly. Um, there's some very long-winded uh, Google analyses uh, where they show that it is extremely difficult to get right and that it's actually it can make things worse if you if you don't get your... Well, for starters, it's very cache unaware. And so yeah, if you're that's spending what I was time saying, sending that something that the cache already yeah. has, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's an interesting analysis, but the upshot is Chrome actually disabled push promises. So mm -hmm. I'm probably not going to implement that, or at least not with any high priority. <laughs> uh, flow control would be the other big HTTP2 feature. So you can basically say, you know, I'm willing to accept this many bytes and then... Uh, stop if you're not ready. Um, and maybe that'll be useful for some streaming. Uh, HTTP 3, I haven't looked into too much yet. 
I know the big change there is the underlying uh, transport mechanisms. So um, it's not using uh, TCP, it's using uh, UDP. Um, mm. And the protocol is, uh, it's inherited from like QUIC. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's going to be any, a lot, like I said, a lot of this is going to be invisible to the user. Hopefully they'll just see that yeah. Aleph will be a little faster. Hmm. I think HTTP three. I mean, you can you can like prove a, that right using using Speedarino that LF right. is indeed I faster. Mm. <laughs> I, I I am going to unleash it on uh, Alif when I get the chance. <laughs> isn't nice. isn't the idea of HTTP three? I mean, you know, like uh, I, I I agree that the the substrate is different, but the idea of changing the substrate is to make the substrate more programmable, actually. So you can innovate on top of that substrate because that's the problem right. with HTTP right now and TCP in general is that yeah. versions are stuck on the routers and they're stuck in the clients. And if you if you if you basically want to change anything, you have to change the whole world, which is which is very slow. <laughs> For sure, yeah, that's that part of why Google invented it. Um, TCP has some you know long-standing issues dating way back, things like the slow start. Um, had a blind blocking blocks, issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's this was, you know, going falling back to UDP, which essentially doesn't present a stream interface. It's just these packets show up whenever. We just know the destination. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Quick replaces TCP, if I recall correctly. Uh, so it's going to essentially replace the TCP part and handle streaming in a more intelligent manner. But I don't know. I haven't crunched the numbers on that one. Um, I, mean, I do I do see quick showing up in because I, I use a program to block all the network connections. So I whitelist every individual thing that my computer is making, which is really, really tedious. And, and, <laughs> and but but I see, hey, you know, this uh, this program is trying to connect to this server with this protocol and all that shit. And sometimes when I get suspicious, I just install like MITM uh, thing in, you know, like Charles or something like a proxy. To see what exactly they are sending for, mm -hmm. for no fucking reason <laughs> like, because if you install any software these days it just makes connections to i don't know continuously phoning home yeah and, uh, shit. but but i've seen like this this quick thing show up uh, a lot in the in my logs these days so i think mm -hmm. think people are upgrading to 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 the you know uh protocols in the newer versions i think yeah, it's mm. a very slow rollout. Yeah. I think HTTP yeah. two came out in like two thousand fourteen, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then mm. HTTP three, even more recent. But it's probably going to happen faster with the evergreen browsers. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're they're. Yeah. I mean, they're, that's what I meant by like in, in the background, just they keep updating and something is running continuously. And every time you start the program, it's a new version. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a weird feeling to think that your computers aren't necessarily strictly under your control or, or yours anymore. I mean, compared to like, you know, growing up, the computer exactly. did nothing I didn't tell it to. Yeah. <laughs> and now like, oh, this computer's got, I don't recognize half of these background processes. What is this doing? Yeah. And also the, the I think what I noticed is, you know, because first of all, when, when, when I started uh, like you folks as well, like you know, there, there is no internet to the computer. Like there is nothing. It's just computers, just standalone thingy. And now every fucking program I start, there is a perceptible delay because they have to talk to some service to 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 start and especially these shitty JavaScript based electron things mm -hmm. and everything. They yeah. have to phone home continuously. 
this is just ridiculous. And yeah. and even all the software that they built, like we use sort of a wiki program. I don't want to name names, but it, the, the desktop of version is built by some service. So you call it todesktop.com. Like that's a nothing to do with this application. And then somehow it connects to Stripe. Why? <laughs> Why are you connecting to Stripe to check my company pay is paying it. for the thing? Yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and the search is, start... is delegated to Algolia. There is no search happening on 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 their own servers, and then it connects to Algolia because all the data has been shipped to Algolia, and then there's a searching as service. Uh, yeah, God, I'm like, it's it's probably waiting up. for micro payments. They're going to charge you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you hear that Ford are introducing a car that can repossess itself? Yeah, 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 yeah. I heard about that. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like what your computer's doing as well. You know, that's what was <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. It just decides you can't use this gonna, shit anymore because, you know. It's going to send someone to collect itself. Did anybody float that idea past Vouch? I mean, when I talked with David about it, they were building, you know, uh, keys for virtual keys or for cars, like. It seems like no, it would be very easy. <laughs> Connect there, to the there, bank there, account there, and then check, yeah. do you have enough money? No, I'm going to block your car. Not even payment. We're going to check your bank balance. Yeah. I, actually, the biggest <laughs> problem we were solving for, and it's an, it is an interesting problem, is that is that uh, keys can... The problem with keys is that if you want to check their validity and you have to phone home, it's a problem if you're out in the woods. And a lot of people go yeah. for camping holidays or they go, you know, whatever they go. Mm-hmm. Cross country, yeah, and uh, and that was there's was, there was lots and lots of famous kind of examples, at least in in that in that world, um, of of keys sort of you know essentially bricking your car. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so actually, we yeah. wanted to do the opposite. We wanted to make sure that uh, that actually it would work in any circumstances, so that it was completely um, you know, completely free of the internet. Um, mm-hmm. Once you were back on the internet, it would check to make sure your keys were still valid. But none of the car companies ever wanted, and they don't want to do this. They don't want to brick the car with a key. Now, that's not right. to say that mm. they won't eventually like come and get get your car collected or get it to drive back to home. You know, it's like <laughs> that's different. That's a different. That's an orthogonal problem. You know, uh-huh. but they definitely don't like yeah. the idea of like the key expiring as you're driving along the highway and then stopping the engine. That would be that would be super right, bad. Right. You know? <laughs> I think the health and safety people might have something to say about that, you know. <laughs> so, so, so what I'm hearing is, I should steal cars from campsites. <laughs> Definitely. Well, you, it's it's difficult to do it. That's the problem. <laughs> well, I just have to steal it where there's no connectivity, and then yank out the or just chop it up for parts. Yeah, but they don't give keys. That's the problem. You know, they don't mm. give that. That, that mm. if you have a key, then you're kind of golden, aren't you? But you know, they don't give physical keys. So yeah, you have to wire it up. Yeah, hot wire of the car on a campsite, then rip out all the uh, infrastructure, then you're good. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm taking notes. Keep uh, going. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's writing in not, his idea this journal. Is, <laughs> this is, this is a, so this is not an endorsement by Defen or by, not by Vouch either. So it's just uh, yeah. <laughs> not that I'm We're completely for, independent media, either, actually. <laughs> yeah. Top ten ways to steal an internet-connected car. <laughs> this one weird trick will will get you a free yeah. car. <laughs> anyway. Drivers, hate um, but it's a yeah, exactly. problem no. where you're, you're kind of like, it. yeah. I mean, you've got all these kinds of problems with like 
there's keys and connectivity, and then you've got problems with batteries because if you're in the if you're in the boondocks and your and your phone like goes out of battery, what are you going to do? You know, you can't get into your car anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now there are ways around this, but maybe it's a different podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be our other podcast, like how to hack your car. That's a different podcast. Well, I, 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 I'd listen to that. Yeah. The batch people are interested in working on that stuff. Well, you know, a very low battery, very, you know, very like one year, two year type battery, small modules that you can use to unlock a car rather than a phone. Anyway, that's cool. a separate, as I say, separate yeah, discussion, yeah. but yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating for sure. Cool. So, um, anyway, coming back to the, <laughs> yeah. I need to get some lunch. Come on, guys. <laughs> so, just to, just to wrap lunch? up the. the yeah, I think he's he's too late for the lunch. I skipped lunch, you know, oh, to have okay. it, and oh. now it's like it's getting. See, on I was o'clock. I was very clever. Uh, I'm very sorry. I was very clever. But don't worry, no worries. Yeah, but I, don't I think just to r- r- wrap it up, maybe you know. Um, so you started from PHP, moved to psychology, came to closure, and then now you're basing your startup thing in 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 closure. So as a conclusive thought, like what are the things that you find like, you know, exciting about closure and then what are the things that are shitty in closure right now for you? Um, maybe the other way around, you know, let's close it on the positive note. So we'll start with the shitty <laughs> stuff and then close it on the positive note. I mean, I don't know. There's some <laughs> decisions that I would just do differently. Like I think the, the better decisions in closure are ones where, uh, a particular way is is uh, blessed or encouraged, but not mandated. Uh, so, for example, mm-hmm. like immutability, uh, it's great. Um, you know, it vastly simplifies like my reasoning about stuff. But mm-hmm. if you need escape hatches, you know, there's transients, there's atoms, or job interop. Um, I wish there were more of those that weren't necessarily prescriptive. I've never been a, a really big big fan of the, uh, the whole records and protocols and some of it is that like the, the job underlying java classness leaks through and i've never liked mm-hmm. that but there's, there's all sorts of like random little impedance mismatches that have always bugged me maybe you know the underlying java parts make that impossible to change like you can't mm-hmm. use helper functions with mutable fields and def types because they can't access mm-hmm. the field and change it and then occasionally i, I butt into like code reuse issues um fellow I'm collaborating with on Manifold is trying to bring the Manifold um, protocols to completable future. It's you know, been a longstanding mm-hmm. request people have had for years. Um, mm-hmm. And there's an abstract completable future type that we could use in Java, but we can't do it in Clojure, unfortunately. So I don't, really, I don't usually need abstract classes that I want to inherit from very often, like maybe once a year, but it irks me that I, I can't do it. Um, yeah. what else? In that case, can you like write one in Java that does it and then use that one? Is that, is that the kind of a scare patch that could be useful? Yeah. We've thought about that. At the moment, the guy is playing around with Potemkin's death abstract type, which oh, okay. is a totally crazy macro that will essentially store a lot of function bodies and then, uh, move them over to another de- definition. Um, oh, so we'll, okay. we'll, we'll see how that works. Um, I guess the, my, my one major complaint about closure, I feel like it's kind of coasting a little bit these days. Uh, I wish mm-hmm. it were a little more, more vibrant. 
Um, and, and maybe, you know, obviously it's not a young language anymore, but uh, I don't know. I, I wish there were, there were more going on. Uh, yeah. Not all of us got bought up by New Bank and are set for life. So <laughs> I have to think about hiring and uh, other issues. So I, yeah. I do wish it were, you know, growing a little bit more. I think the fact that the core team grew by twenty five percent in the last two years is pretty good, but it could do with a little <laughs> bit. Could do with a slight, a slight increase in that number. Um, but in terms of you know what I, I love about the language, uh, I mean it is still a, a deeply elegant language, and uh, mm. I really enjoy programming in it. Um, mm. I don't know that I never really felt that way about like another language. Um, but that being said, you know, I've also been programming with Clojure for a while, and sometimes you start to get an itch to see what else is out there. So I keep thinking, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to play around with Rust for my next side project, or maybe I'll check out this Elixir thing. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, but it yeah. hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Nice. Cool. I've, yeah, I've had yeah. a look at Rust. I think VJ has as well, and I don't know. It's just, it definitely doesn't bring me any joy, but. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't. That's I don't think it's, it's the. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm. I don't think Rust is specifically joyful, like closure, like the, you know, the the tight feedback loop. But I think the 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 switch of the mental model that I have to make is a bit different. Like I need to rethink, and uh, I keep hacking on smaller tools or some other shit. And I also write Python, a lot of Python as well. I mean, well, which I'm is hoping okay, it'll be... you know. The language that I like the look of, and I've only done a little bit of programming in it, which is, in my opinion, I'm an old C programmer, um, is Zig. Because Zig is like definitely a better version of C in terms of its memory model um, and its like type systems. But it's not as mind-fuckering as, as Rust is. That's a technical <laughs> term, you know, <laughs> with this borrowing model, which is <laughs> incredibly annoying, you know, and like very very quickly kind of it's like the maybe of um of memory models you know it just 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 expands everywhere very quickly <laughs> those of you reading the transcription he did not say mind bleepery <laughs> <laughs> i think we, we have to use the right uh, right transcription service <laughs> i mean even even the gpt stuff is just saying no i can't do that or i am not going to tell you how you know a joke about a specific thing because there are so many guardrails around ai now so i don't think yeah. our podcast is transcriptable that easily anymore <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have crossed that uh, correctness boundary a long time ago anywho uh matthew thank, thanks a lot uh, thanks a lot yeah. for you know uh, taking the time and i know you're on the other side of the world but uh you know wish you a really really big success with uh, speedorino i'm not sure if you have mm. announced it already or if there is a website or anything yet. Uh, i have not this uh, is sort of the the soft launch anybody who wants to check it oh, out can go to wow. speedorino.com and .com. add themselves okay. to the mailing list and i will let you know when it's ready to be uh inflicted i mean tested on you <laughs> 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 you, you'll be ready to make things faster for 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 people. That uh, well, yeah, if you have the same compulsion to make things fast, look me up. <laughs> that sounds good. We'll sign up. We'll sign up today. Yeah. All right. We'll put uh, thanks show. for having me on. It's it's yeah. been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, thanks a lot. Very much and great great work on uh, maintaining the, manifold uh, and uh, manifold and Aleph as well. I mean, that's just uh, that's yeah. 
Thank I'm just trying to keep the lights on. Yeah, I think I think <laughs> we can can all say that's excellent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Good, good. Yeah. Cool. On that happy note, let's say bye bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of DefN. And the awesome vegetarian music or the track is Melon Hamburger by Pizzeri. And the show's audio is mixed by Walter Dillert. I'm pretty sure I butchered his name. Um, maybe you should insert your own name here, Dillert. Walter. If you'd like to support us, uh, please do check out our Patreon page. And you can show your appreciation to all the hard work or the lack of hard work that we're doing. And um, you can also catch up with uh, either Ray, with me, for some unexplainable reason. Uh, you want to interact with us, then uh, do check us out on Slack, Closure in Slack or Closureverse, or on Zulip, or just at us at Defen Podcast on Twitter. Enjoy your day and see you in the next episode.